My fellow soldiers have no beer. Please send some. This was the order sent out in 100 AD by Flavius Suralis, commanding officer of a Roman legion stationed in the chilly wilds of Northumbria. The commander's request is the first reference in English history to beer. Ironically enough, from a culture of wine drinkers. Romans and Greeks believed that wine was pure and manly. And beer was the second-class barbarian's beverage. Greek philosopher Aristotle claimed, Those intoxicated from wine fall onto their faces, but those who have drunk the barley turn upside down on their heads. But finding themselves in wild and windy grape-free northern barbarian Britain, Among people the Romans snootily called, The sons of malt. The Romans turned to the upside-down world of beer. Developing a taste for the local Celtic drink. Setting up breweries throughout their colonies. And Taverna, Britain's first hostelries. A Roman wooden writing tablet names Britain's first known professional beer maker. Ereticus the brewer. Romans were often named for their job. And brewers were important members of the community. The tablet tells us how much people paid for beer 2,000 years ago. Eight asses for a metrata. Eight copper coins. About £15 a pint. A price even modern-day London pubs would be too embarrassed to charge. By the time the Romans arrived on the shores of Albion, the locals had been making ale for over 2,000 years. Ancient Britons brewed beer in ditches dug in the ground, filling them with water and barley and then adding flavouring. Hops weren't cultivated back then, so they used plants to make what were known as Groot Ales. One flavouring was mugwort, which sounds like something Harry Potter would drink. Wort is an old English word for plant. And henbane, known as stinking nightshade, which is an hallucinogen. So some ancient Britons must have been drunk and stoned at the same time. Hembane also makes you thirsty. So the more you drink, the more you want to drink. Another Groot was St John's Wort. Named for the legend that if it was gathered on St John's Eve, it protected against disease and misfortune. Modern day herbalists use St John's Wort for anxiety. The ale makers threw some mouldy fruit into the brew, which carried yeast to start fermentation. And once the natural yeast has done its work, you have beer that you can sell to the nearby thirsty Roman legion. These ales were cloudy and bitter, with bits of plant floating in the liquid. So, to filter out the residue, the ancients invented the straw, a far cry from the plastic ones you put in a cocktail. At up to three feet long, the finest ones were decorated with silver and gold. Men of work must have land to dwell in, weapons, meat, clothing and ale. Without these, he cannot perform any tasks entrusted to him. The words of the great 9th century Anglo-Saxon king, Alfred the Great. Ale overflowed in Saxon England. People gathered in mead halls. In communities known as an assembly of drinkers where ale was used to seal personal and business deals. So much drinking went on that concerned kings started regulating the ale sellers. 
King Edgar was convinced that drunkenness was destroying England. So he commanded the first ever English beer regulations. Asking his Archbishop Dunstan to draw up laws to stop the bibulous breakdown of order. There shall be one alehouse per village, one system of measurement. Even standardising the size of Viking-style drinking horns. But no king could come between the Anglo-Saxons and their ales. The standard measure for drinking vessels at the time was a pottle. Four pints. A pottle was divided into eight parts. With nails or pins placed inside the drinking tankard as measures. The rule was that nobody should drink down more than one peg at a sitting. Unsurprisingly, the Saxon swigger's response was... Oh, me pottle! As they competed, telling rival drinkers... I'll take you down a peg or two. Possibly the origins of that idiom. One Saxon king was as hard-drinking as any field-ploughing yeoman. Arthur Canute ruled England between 1040 and 1042. And his name meant tough, not. The young king attended a wedding feast in Lambeth. The chronicles record that he rose to toast the bride and... As he stood at his drink, he suddenly fell to the earth with an awful convulsion. He spoke no word afterwards. The official line was that Arthur Canute had drunk himself to death. So, not as tough a knot as his name suggests. It's possible that he had been assassinated, supping from a poison chalice smuggled in by his successor, Edward the Confessor. While kings and nobles were sailed, medieval monasteries should have been abstemious. But the brothers were as bibulous as any alehouse snifter, despite the severe penalties. The 6th century monk, Gildas, instructed, If the monastery abounds in beer, he who has been polluted by indecent liquid should keep awake, standing for three hours of the night. In 745, the archbishops of York banned priests from taverns. And the Archbishop of Canterbury Dunstan ruled... Let no priest be an alesop. Beware of drunkenness. Let men be very temperate at church wakes and pray earnestly and suffer no drinking. Alehouses had a laugh at the expense of the archbishop. Putting Dunstan's face on their pub signs, depicting him tweaking the devil's nose. For all the archbishop's protestations, the clergy were on the piss throughout England. One East Anglia chronicle recorded a priest so drunk he could barely walk, claiming that when... Trying to perform mass, he vomited in front of the congregation. It's not surprising that the priests were in their cups. Because the church made money from beer. Cistercian monks at Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire produced 1,100 gallons of ale every week. To either drink themselves or sell to the locals. And the parishes held popular church ales. Fundraisers with music, dancing and drinking. Where ale was sold, raising money to keep the church in good repair. St Agnes in Norfolk features the inscription God speed the plough and give us good ale now. Be merry and glade. With good ale was this work made. The word bridal comes from bride ale. A party to raise money for the soon-to-be-weds. Ales frequently turned into marathon boozing sessions. Running for up to three days. With parishioners encouraged to drink as much as possible. With the tradition, by day three, 
any bachelor still able to stand up could drink for free. There were cuckoo ales to celebrate the first bird song of spring. And details, lamb ales, held at lamb shearing, Whitson ales, Clark ales and bid ales. An invitation to a Scott ale meant contributing a flagon or two of brew. An early form of bring your own. A pay-to-play party raising cash for the host. A lord of the manor hosting a Scott ale could insist on your attendance. Alarmed church leaders tried to stop the ales. In 1223, the Bishop of Salisbury ordered that marriages must be celebrated reverently and with honour, not with laughter or sport or at public potations or feasts. These drunken wedding celebrations led to the Archbishop of Canterbury threatening to ban common drinking bouts, by which name they call charity ales. But the church leaders were not singing from the same hymn sheet. When they buried the Bishop of Winchester in 1319, 1,000 gallons of ale were given to the poor. And in 1500, the priest of Lymington got so plastered that the magistrate put him in the stocks. This drunken humiliation did nothing to impede his career. Because Thomas Wolsey rose to become cardinal and chancellor to Henry VIII. And medieval ales may have changed the entire course of English history. According to historian William of Malmesbury, beer led to England losing the Battle of Hastings. He describes how the French spent the night before the fight fasting and praying. While the English were accustomed to drink till they were sick. Drinking was a universal practice in which occupation they passed entire nights as well as days. Which meant they attacked the French more with rashness and fury than military skill. English soldiers lost the Battle of Hastings because they were half cut. Beer began 8,000 years ago in the world's earliest cities, in Mesopotamia. Its first brewers, the Sumerians, worshipped the ale goddess Ninkasi. Her name means mistress of beer. There are ancient tablets showing the original beer makers were women. Female brewers, known as brewsters. Who were at the heart of medieval ale production in England. Tending the brewing pot for many hot and sticky hours. Adding individual flavours to make tasty brews. Known as alewives, they would brew for their family and sell the excess. Creating small commercial enterprises. Medieval women were excluded from lucrative jobs. Particularly if they were unmarried or widowed. But brewing and tippling were trades women could run independently or with their husbands. Giving them a rough and ready equality with men. During the 1300s, in the Northamptonshire parish of Bridgestock, there were 300 women brewing and selling beer. One in three of the women who lived in the town. With similar numbers in the villages and cities throughout England. With every household consuming around 10 pints of beer a day, there was a ready demand for the Brewster's Ales. Professional Brewsters advertised their businesses by displaying a broomstick outside their house. Known as an ale stake or wand, 
it was a signal that ale was available to purchase. The first ever pub signs. The ale state would come down once the supply had been sold. Alewives wore tall hats to stand out on crowded market streets and kept cats in the brew houses to protect the grain from mice. They were often unmarried. And some scholars argue that the combination of cats, hats and broomsticks and a brewing cauldron gave birth to the classic image of a witch. As ale lasted only a few days before it went sour, some women sold the excess on the streets and in the markets, known as hucksters, with a feminine-ending stir like Brewster's. Sometimes they bought beer to resell. And these women were known as regretresses. They had a reputation for watering down ales. Alewives were seen as temptresses, spreading immorality, disobeying their husbands, cheating customers and charging unlawful prices. Although records show that ale crimes were split equally between the sexes. This did not stop the perception that Brewsters were morally corrupt. Barnaby Rich, a writer who visited Ireland in the 1600s, reported... I speak of the riffraff, the most filthy queens. Those housewives that do selling of the drink in Dublin. Filthy and the beastly alehouse keepers. They are in the manner of their life and living to be detested and abhorred. In 1540... The city of Chester banned women between 14 and 40 from selling ale. Laws which made it extremely difficult for the Brewsters. Undercut by larger businesses and ultimately pushed out of their livelihood. Until no woman could continue to work as an alewife and keep their reputation intact. Brewing became an urbanised, commercialised and male-dominated industry. What do you drink? Ale if I have it, water if I have no ale. This is known as the rule of Alfred, an English abbot who wrote a guide to living a thousand years ago. Half a worker's wages could be paid in ale in those times. Sometimes peasants paid their rent in ale. Medieval men, women and children drank at least five pints a day. So, was this literally a very merry England? Probably not. Medieval brewers made a lot of small beer. Weaker than modern ales. Around 1-2% to 2 alcohol. For city dwellers in particular, beer was a safe drink. If a local well was polluted, it could come with a dose of cholera. Ale was boiled during brewing and the alcohol helped get rid of any dangerous bacteria. Calorie-rich ale kept peasants and labourers going. And there was money to be made. In the search of extra profits, Brewers would try and pass off short measures, sparking quarrels. In 1215, England's founding human rights document, the Magna Carta, tried to remedy this with the ruling... Clause 35. There is to be one measure of ale throughout our kingdom. But this had to be regulated. And so, the beer police was born. Known as Ale Connors. Now, this sounds like the most sought-after job in medieval Britain. But these tasters of ale were instructed not to fill their bellies or drink over muckle in the time of the tasting. And ale corners were sworn to examine and assay the beer and ale, to take care it be good and wholesome, and sold at proper prices according to the assize, and to present all defaults of the brewers to the court leet. There's a popular belief 
that Ale Connors employed a system of testing using leather pants. He would enter the inn unexpectedly, draw a glass of ale, pour it on a wooden bench and then sit down in the little puddle. There he would sit for 30 minutes by the clock, converse, smoke and drink, but would not change his position in any way. At the end of the half hour, he would make to rise and this was the test of the ale. For if the ale was impure and had sugar in it, the tester's leather breeches would stick fast to the bench. But if there was no sugar in the liquor, no impression would be present and the tester would not stick to the seat. Sadly, the leather breeches story is probably a false one. A case of pants on fire. Ale taster's actual method was more mundane and more obvious. They send one of the company into the house, who shall choose the pot whereof he will taste and discern according to the law. There was a problem recruiting local ale conners. Anyone controlling brews and handing out fines could easily become unpopular. So the post was rotated amongst the locals. Before the introduction of hops, ale couldn't be stored for very long and had to be brewed on site, so there were lots of small producers. The price of a pint of beer was set by law, governed by a local licensing system known as the Assize, with fines for anyone overcharging. In 1316, in the Cambridgeshire village of Meldreth, Hugh Cugwin was fined for brewing offences. And again in 1329, 1334 and 1335. In a bizarre twist, Hugh was then appointed village ale taster and fined again on nine separate occasions. It is just possible that poor Hugh had made enemies in his small village, who took it out on him by reporting Hugh to the local Leet courts. In Cheam, one ale corner was assaulted twice while checking the brews. In 1337, Agnes Boucher of Eversden was fined for selling ale by two gallons and a quart measures rather than the authorised one gallon. Perhaps she was short-selling by avoiding the regulated gallon measures. In rural areas, the assize rules were enforced by manorial lords and the fact that the likes of Hugh and Agnes continued to be fined indicates that if the lord kept the fines, the brewers made their money and the villagers got their ales, everyone was happy. We all know what a medieval inn looks like. Outside the welcoming sign, a king's head or carved stag calls in the punters. Happy peasants gather around a crackling log fire. A balladeer sings songs of love and everyday life on the land. In one corner, a soldier recounts his warrior tales. Behind the bar, a jolly wench doles out tankards served with a sharp wit. None of this existed. There was no such thing as a village inn. An inn was an hotel. A large building with lodgings and stables. When a noble, gentleman or merchant travelled, they stayed in an inn. Not a place working people could afford. Once you paid for a bed, the landlord made money on the extras. Hey for your horse, sir. Two pennies. Pheasant pie for the lady. Three pennies. Inns were located in large towns and cities. 
and innkeepers were a wealthy part of the urban elite. Members of local governments who acted as bankers, brokers, lenders and traders. Inns were often the largest and best appointed public rooms in town. Used for multiple purposes, including meeting out justice. Small court sessions were held at inns, with the justice of the peace sitting at his bench. One witness thought this most inappropriate, remarking that the justice's business was conducted amidst the smoking of pipes, the clattering of pots and the noise and ordure of a narrow room infected with drinking in a throng, where a magistrate signs a warrant with one hand whilst holding a glass in the other. English literature was born in an inn. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales begins at the Tabard, just south of Old London Bridge. There came at nightfall to that hostelry, some nine and twenty in a company of sundry persons who had chanced to fall in fellowship, and pilgrims were they all that toward Canterbury town would ride. The rooms and stables spacious were and wide, and well we there were eased. Taverns served wine, which was more expensive than ale. The Boar's Head Tavern stood on London's East Cheap, immortalised by Shakespeare in his play Henry IV. Home to the roistering pistol Bardolph and Jack Falstaff. Jack Falstaff drinks sack, a fortified sherry. The most expensive drink in Tudor England. Perhaps the bard disliked ale. His father was the ever unpopular ale conner in his Stratford hometown. And Shakespeare only mentions ale 16 times in his plays. But there are hundreds of references to wine in his stories. The bard only spoke of ale when writing about the lower orders. And only one scene in his plays has an alehouse setting. Which is odd. Because in Shakespeare's day, alehouses had been around for 300 years. In England, in the year 1200, there was no such thing as a pub. But by the 1500s, the alehouse was part of every community. Its doors always open. Not just for welcome. It was a legal requirement that passing constables and magistrates could look inside and check for disorder. And while peasant houses were bare and cold, the inn had a fire in winter, a luxury that ordinary people could not afford. There were trestle tables and barrels for the hostess to serve from. Alehouses were usually run by women. Often a widow, because licences were granted to widows out of pity. The punters were a mix of locals and travellers. Men and women, servants, labourers, farmhands, teenagers, even children. There were no laws about drinking age. Locals could buy on tick or barter beer for a chicken or perhaps some eggs. A convivial place for everyone. The ancestor of the modern pub. In 1428, the first hops were planted in England. This signalled the slow demise of ale and the rise of beer. Hops are seed cones of the plant Humulus lupus. Lupus from the Latin for wolf, given this name because it kills plants nearby. Today the words beer and ale are interchangeable. But historically beer was made with hops and ale with barley. Perishable ale had to be drunk within three days and was sludgy. Beer lasted longer and was fizzy and refreshing. So once hops arrived, most of England switched to them for brewing. But some held on to their ale traditions. In Lancashire, 
ale was popular until the mid-1600s. And Cornwall remained loyal to ale, a tradition celebrated in this poem. I am a Cornishman. Ale I can brew. It will make one to cack, also to spew. It is thick and smoky. And also, it is thin. It is like wash as pigs had wrestled therein. The soldiers in Henry VIII's army preferred beer. In 1544, the commander of the king's forces complained that his army was so short of supplies they... have drunk no beer these last ten days, which is strange for Englishmen to do with so little grudging. When Henry's daughter Elizabeth came to the throne, her subjects would drink hundreds of different brews with evocative names such as... The Mad Dog, Father Horson, Angel's Food, Dragon's Milk, Go By The Wall, Stride Wide, Lift Leg, Dagger Ale. Queen Elizabeth's household guzzled 600,000 gallons a year. But Her Majesty disliked drunkenness. On one occasion, asking a lord why he was late, she got the reply, If faith, madam, drinking your majesty's health. The queen retorted, So I thought, and I am sorry for it, for I never fare worse than when my health is drunk. Elizabeth was served a potent brew during a visit to Kenilworth Castle. So strong as there was no man able to drink it, and it did put her far out of temper. And the Queen issued a ban on the super-strength drink known as double, double beer. By 1577, there were 20,000 licensed alehouses, inns and taverns in Britain. As well as thousands of illegal smugglers' dens and huckster houses. It sounds like a recipe for drunken chaos. But parishes and towns regarded drinking dens as a way of keeping vagabonds and tramps out of the poorhouses, which cost them money to run. Much cheaper if they stayed out of sight in the alehouse. Where pie-eyed punters could fall asleep on benches or the straw-strewn floors. If they had spare cash, they could pay the landlord for somewhere to sleep. Often finding themselves in bed with other guests. Rather racily, the great bed of Ware in a Hertfordshire inn accommodated four couples at a time. And alehouse keeper Evan App Rice was reprimanded for... Lodging strange men in his bed... <laughs> With him and his wife. The brew houses served as hostels and community centres. With ale, food and warm rooms. But once the fire went out at night, snoring patrons could freeze. One Cheshire Ale housekeeper was fined for running a house with so many gaps in the walls that you could see the punters asleep inside. And the heavy drinking culture brought a host of other problems. Gambling was rife and professional hustlers would swindle tipsy merrymakers by using loaded dice to rig the games. According to a Swiss visitor, London's boozers were frequented by great swarms of prostitutes. And following the introduction of tobacco, Tudor publicans had to deal with an early version of the smoking ban. With a reputation for vice and drunkenness, drinking houses faced a torrent of Puritan anger. Wassail, wassail, all over the town Our toast it is white and our ale it is brown Our bowl it is made of the white maple tree With a wassailing bowl we'll drink to thee A boozy building boom meant that in England by 1620 
there was one tippling house for every 50 citizens. In London, a walk of only a few hundred yards from Whitehall to Charing Cross took you past 40 brew houses, inns and taverns. The ale knight's heads must have been in a spin. Because on that short walk, there were two red lions, two mitres and three King Harry heads. Magistrates complained that it was impossible to regulate the proliferating brew houses, protesting to the mayor that there is no house that hath a back door, but when it cometh to let, is taken for a tavern. King James I intervened, passing four laws to limit wassailing. The first declared, Whereas the loathsome and odious sin of drunkenness is of late grown into common use within this realm, being the root and foundation of many other enormous sins, as bloodshed, stabbing, murder, swearing, fornication, adultery and such like, to the great dishonour of God and of our nation. When this had no effect, the king imposed a five-shilling fine for drunkenness, or six hours in the stocks. With an extra four hours in the stocks, for drinking in your own neighbourhood. None of this worked. Presumably because hardly anybody paid the fines and a couple of hours in the stocks was a small price to pay for the pleasure of the tankard. So in 1627, a new law decreed a public flogging for tipplers who did not pay their fines. And to encourage enforcement, parishes were authorised to use these fines to supplement poor relief. In Dorchester, a public brew house was built with its profits offset against the poor rate. To increase the king's revenue, the exchequer hiked taxes on hops. Clamping down on the superabundance of unlicensed drinking houses. The church was dragged into the beer battles when in 1631, Puritan Judge Richardson ordered the suppression of church ales and wakes. Furious parishes objected. The king was forced to intervene. His Majesty's express will and pleasure is that these fates shall be observed. The alehouse was now at the centre of a tug of war between the people's right to enjoy themselves and a moral panic about the drinking culture. But when King Charles was defeated in the Civil War, toleration gave way to suppression. And new ruler Oliver Cromwell's message to the people made it clear. For as much as His Highness, the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, hath taken special note of the mischief and great disorders which are daily committed in the taverns, inns and alehouses, the justices are to take special care for the suppressing of alehouse keepers receiving into their house any company on the Lord's Day. Puritans, now in power, captured one of the king's soldiers and hanged him from the sign of the king's head inn, telling him, You must have one word with the king before you go. The names of pubs now became intertwined with power and politics. My sign was once a crown, but now it is changed. The royalist landlord of the Crown in Morning pub. Its name, a loyal tribute to the executed king, was forced to change it to the poet's head. In the 18th century, there was a group of workers who had a beer named after them. 
The fellowship porters were dock workers who loaded and unloaded vessels anchored in the river. Hard graft, fueled by 2,000 calories a day from beer. Pubs for porters, pit stops. There was a bench outside for porters to sit on and a rest for their loads. When new porters were initiated, they were given a quart of strong ale and their new badge of office was dropped into a mug. And the new porter had to extract the badge with his teeth without spilling any ale. In the early 18th century, harsh taxes were placed on malt, beer and hops. To keep the prices down, brewers lowered the strength of the beers, adding more hops to compensate for the loss of alcohol. But the cheap, wood-dried malt gave their beer a smoky tang. So, they stored it for longer until the taste of the smoke faded, accidentally creating a smooth, creamy beer they called porter. But there was a problem. The casks of fermenting beer gave off carbon dioxide gas. Brewers did not know this. In 1756, Cooper to the King's brewer Robert Huck went into the cellar in the Eagle and Child Alehouse on Pall Mall in London to sort out 40 butts of beer left there unstoppered. When he failed to come out, Watt Bailey went down and found him lying on the ground and in endeavouring to help him up, fell down dead by him. The bodies of the two men were drawn up by hooks. The cooper was found to be not quite dead, whereupon he was bloodied, but he expired immediately. Eventually, brewery workers learnt to place a lit candle where they suspected carbon dioxide might have gathered. If the candle went out, they knew not to enter. While coopers risked their lives, beer making at factory scale paved the way for the rise of brewing barons. Many of those names are still with us. Whitbread, Truman, Smith, Fuller, Bass and Guinness. The brewers became rich. With money to be made, bastard brews started to appear. Adulterated with berry juice and sulfuric acid. To defend their reputation, the breweries started to tie in landlords who could only sell their beer. The breweries even sold porter to porters. Reed & Co hired teams of porters to shift sacks of malt into the brewery. Reed's then made the porters pick up their pay at one of its pubs and expected them to drink a pint of beer in the pub after they'd been paid. When the brewery increased the porters' pay, it also increased the amount of beer they were expected to drink. To a pot. Two pints. The pub had established an unbreakable grip on the working man. Foreman would set up pay tables in pubs. Handing over wages at the beer house on the grounds of convenience. With kickbacks for the foreman. And money for the landlord. This was a symbol of the unbreakable link between the labourer and the boozer that would define millions of people's lives for the next century. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Sackian and co-hosted with Anthony Robbins, also known as Mr Londoner. Music by Alexander Nakarada is licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Extra voices and song by Tony Lewis. 
The music was written by Jeremy Pattle. To listen to part two of our History of Beer podcast, visit www.storiesofbritain.com. Please like and subscribe.